Father, I want to thank you that when your word is truly preached, your voice is really heard. And so God, we're going to gather around your word and Lord, as we do, we're trusting that you're the one who will speak. You're the one who will teach us. And by the Holy Spirit, you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have to say for us this morning. And Lord, we know we're not the only church that's gathered in this community. And so we pray for the other churches to hear your voice from your word as well. I pray for Pastor Perry Salter, Lord, that you'd fill him with the power of your Holy Spirit. That as he proclaims the Bible, that he would do so with your favor, God. That he would teach as one who's teaching the very word of God and that he would be filled with your spirit as he does. And Lord, I pray for your people that are part of the church that he is the lead pastor of Calvary Baptist, God, that you would work in them, that they would experience the fullness of your power as they gather and the expression of your power as they go. And so Lord, we love you and we bless you and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11. We're almost finished with this series on Hebrews chapter 11. Actually, next week we'll finish um, officially this series on real faith. And we're gonna do it not in chapter 11, but in the first two verses of chapter 12. So Easter Sunday morning, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. And those verses really are the capstone to the teaching that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. But this morning, we're gonna look at Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 40. Um, When I was a teenager, I did something Thing on a Thanksgiving that I had never done before in my life. I, I had a family dinner, obviously, that we were going to have uh, together in my parents' home, but it wasn't going to be until later in the day. And I had a friend who invited me over to a Thanksgiving dinner at their house. And so I took that invitation and I went for the first part of the day to spend Thanksgiving at somebody else's house. I'd never done that before. So here I am as a guest in their house and I go over to my friends and his whole family's uh, gathered together along with all the food that they had prepared and you need to know something I love Thanksgiving it's my personal Super Bowl um, because I'm a big fan of of eating but you need to know that I'm pretty finicky about the food that I eat because my mom spoiled us Uh, she is an all-time world-class chef and so she has fed us from birth the best food you could possibly uh, imagine and so uh, my mom had served her delicacies to us our whole childhood which meant that her cooking had become my gold standard some of you guys know what I'm talking about right when you have a great cook for mom that's what happened I hadn't met Emily yet she's now my gold standard she's an, an incredible cook but mom was the gold standard back in the day and there's no meal that my mom prepares that personifies her gold standard cooking like her traditional Thanksgiving feast. Her turkey is perfectly moist and it's sliced the perfect thickness. Not so thin that you don't feel like you're getting a substantial piece of meat, but not so thick you need to recruit a knife to help you out. You know what I'm talking about? The perfect moist turkey and her mashed potatoes. Oh Lord, thank you for those mashed potatoes. They've got the perfect amount of butter mixed with just the right amount of salt. It has that yin-yang, both best of both world kind of thing, and it's the right consistency. Not so, so, so dry, you know, that they're thick and you don't like them, but not so, so like runny. That's either the, you know, perfect mashed potato. And then she's got this cream corn. 
Now, I gotta tell you, there's something in mom's cream corn that provides an ecstasy. I'm not quite sure what it is. I'm pretty sure it's illegal in 38 states in Canada. There's something suspicious about how good mom's cream corn is. Her green beans pair perfectly with her world record setting uh, sweet tea, also known as liquid gold, anything. You guys get the point. So mom's Thanksgiving feast is the gold standard of all eating on the face of the earth. And here I am at my friend's house on Thanksgiving. They've got all of their family dishes out on the table. And there was something that was going on inside of me the entire time I was there. And if you've been in a situation like this, you might be able to identify with what I I was experiencing. Every item of food that they presented, every item of food that I, I looked at, everything that I saw triggered an immediate comparison in my mind. You guys know what I'm talking about? So I'm looking around that table and I, I, everything I, I look at, I, I start to think, man, this is, this is really good. Like the turkey was really good. And, and I started to think to myself, this is good turkey. I, I'm a fan of good turkey. But as I ate it, I had to think to myself, this is good, but, but mom's is better, right? Mom's is better. Some of the food wasn't so good, like their casserole. Now I gotta tell you, I'm not a fan of casseroles in any situation because I wanna mix and match my food like I want it. I don't need somebody else making that decision for me. But this was a particularly bad casserole, to be honest with you. So I didn't eat hardly any of it. And as I'm eating it, I'm thinking to myself, sure, I know this doesn't taste good and I'm not gonna eat very much of that, but that's okay. It's okay. Today, I, I know what's coming up. Mom's food's right around the corner and it's okay. I can do without food now if I have to because something incredible is on its way. I got mom's food. You guys know what I'm talking about? That comparison you're having. Just so that you know, that's what I do at your all's houses too. So it's, I'm sorry, I, I apologize. I just had to come right out. And so, no, seriously though, that whole day I spent comparing everything that I experienced with the food Mama Green had right around the corner, she was whipping up for me. And no matter the food I was eating, whether it was good or bad, my comparison yielded the exact same result. Mom's is better, mom's is better. The reason why I bring that up is because that dynamic, that constant thing that goes on in your heart in a situation like that is similar to what it's like to live as a follower of Jesus Christ, the life of faith, that we're called to to live. This is the capstone to Hebrews chapter 11. And what we see is that real faith, the, the kind of faith that's being applauded, that's being celebrated and commended here, the kind of faith that pleases God and blesses us, it's the kind of faith that constantly, no matter what you're experiencing on this earth, it constantly says, comparatively, Jesus is better. It's the kind of faith that goes on top of a mountain And on the mountaintops of life says, this is good, but Jesus is better. And it's the kind of faith that walks through valleys and even in the valleys of life says, it's okay. Jesus is better. The kind of faith that pleases God and blesses us says, Jesus is better. He's always better. And that's what we'll see in the verses that we'll read this morning. Look at verse 32. We'll pick up where we left off last week. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me. By the way, I'm really glad that another preacher feels that way. Time would fail me. I'm always running out. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, 
of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins and sheep, uh, skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now look at this. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is God's word for us this morning. So what's going on in these final verses of Hebrews chapter 11? What what you see is that Hebrews chapter 11, all the way through, is intentionally laid out through the Holy Spirit's leadership, and the author of Hebrews is working to present this picture to us. And it starts in creation. At the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, you'll notice that the author references creation, and then right after that, it references a person who was born right after creation, namely Abel, who was Adam and Eve's son, and then it goes on to talk about about Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and chronologically basically it works through the Old Testament all the way to the life of Moses and then the verses we just read are the rest of the Bible or the rest of the Old Testament summarized. So Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, those were all judges during that period of Israel's history. David represents the kings. Samuel and the prophets represent well, I guess they, they represent Samuel and the prophets, right? Which isn't a, a group from the 60s. That was Benny and the Jets. Samuel and the prophets. The author in that section, though, is showing us something by laying it out chronologically and by picking people who represented every period of time in the Old Testament. The author's telling us something. And here's what the author is saying. There has always and only been one way to be pleasing to God. And it's through faith in who he is and what he's promised to do. There wasn't an Old Testament way and now a New Testament way to be pleasing to God. It has always and only been one way, by God's grace through our faith in who he is and what he's promised to do. And you'll see that even more clearly in verses 39 and 40 when we go through those in just a second. But before we we go through verses 39 and 40, I wanna make sure you see something that's happening in verses 32 through 38. The first half includes incredible stories of these mountaintop experiences among God's people. Listen to these again, starting in verse 33. This is what people experienced through faith. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. Think Daniel in the lion's den. They quenched the power of fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. That's a pretty encouraging list, isn't it? Okay, that's a pretty encouraging list. I'm not even gonna ask y'all, okay? That just is. That you would conquer armies and you would fight battles and win. 
that, that you would quench the, the, the power of fire, that you'd receive your loved ones back from the dead through the power of resurrection. Incredibly powerful mountaintop experiences. And what the author's doing in that is he's saying, listen, there have been people throughout all time who've been pleasing to God because of their faith. And while they were on the mountaintop, they weren't pleasing to God because they were victorious. They were pleasing to God because they remained people of faith on the mountaintop. They keep their eyes focused on who God is and what he's promised in the very best times of life. But it's not just mountaintops. There are lots of valleys. Look at where we left off in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. They had a way out and they didn't take it so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Now that's quite a different list, isn't it, than the first one. Destitute, afflicted, Wandering around, not having a home, being hated, despised, rejected, and even killed. These people walking through the darkest valleys this world has to offer were still pleasing to God because they were walking through the valleys by faith. So let me summarize really quickly. Here's what the author's doing. He's saying, through faith, some people were successful as we think of success while at the same time, others failed miserably. They, they lived in a life of oppression. Some literally won battles, some literally lost battles. Some lived in palaces like King David, while others lived in caves like many of the prophets. So what's the point? What's he saying with these two huge extremes? Well, notice he's telling us in verses 39 through 40 what his point is. Let's look at it one phrase at a time. Why would he show these two extremes of mountaintops and valleys and God being pleased with their faith? Look at verse 39. All these, and here's the first phrase. What do you think he means by all these, by the way? Yeah, good job. Way to go with the Greek. All these, every single one of them, no matter what their life was like and no matter how hard or great their victory may have come, All of them, look at this next phrase, though commended through their faith. Let's stop right there really quickly. He's saying all of these, no matter where they were at, no matter what their life was like, all of them were commended. That means that God was pleased. He praised in a sense. He commended them for their faith. That means he he looked at their lives, no matter where they were at, and saw that they had faith in his promises, that they were believing and trusting in him. And since that's always and only been the basis of pleasing, God, God was pleased with them. But what I really want you to notice about this, and we don't have a lot of time, but I don't want to skip over this too quickly, is to show you that this teaching about faith is a great safeguard from two extremes that exist in so-called Christianity in the world today. The first extreme is a heresy called prosperity theology. Prosperity theology teaches that if you have the right kind of faith, if you'll just have enough of the right kind of faith, God will show you his blessing through prosperity. And when they say prosperity, namely they mean health and wealth. And I've got to tell you, so much damage is done by this heresy in the lives of people. 
People on mountaintops believe they're there because of the power of their own faith and not the grace of God. And people who live in valleys and sickness believe they're there because they just don't have enough faith, which means God isn't pleased with them. And brothers and sisters, you need to know that is a lie from the pit of hell. All right? God was pleased and still is through the faith of people who will trust in him in and through the valley. Those who who suffer and are afflicted and mistreated were still commended because it isn't the circumstance of our life that determines our faith. It's our faith that sustains us through the circumstances. So this teaching denies or it it, it undercuts prosperity theology. There's another extreme and it's not quite as popular because it's not as appealing to our flesh, but there are others who hold this false idea that a life of faith that pleases God basically becomes a vow of poverty. And I've got to tell you, we don't have time to go through that, but I don't know how you reconcile that with the fact that God himself is pleased in the prosperity of people who had victories, even to the point that there were some who lived literally like kings because they were. God was not displeased with people people just because there was a prosperity to their life. He commended them through their faith because it wasn't the circumstances of their life that made them pleasing to God. It was faith in the promises of God. So the next phrase then in verse 39 with that set aside that that gives us then Next phrase of 39 gives us reason to see why their faith, though, was so pleasing to God on mountaintops or valleys. Look at verse 39. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. Stop right there. These people, he says, are commended by their faith because they, in the middle of whatever circumstance they were in, they were believing a promise that was more than what they were experiencing. In other words, those people who were on the mountaintop had faith and were believing God for something that was better than the mountaintop. They weren't just believing God for health, wealth, and prosperity. As a matter of fact, they were believing there was something better than health, wealth, and prosperity. And those who lived in the valleys of life for something that they were walking through that was hard, they were still believing God to be good. As a matter of fact, they were sustained through the valleys of their life because they were believing God for something that was better than anything this world has to offer and could walk them through the valleys of this world. And that's what verse 40 is pointing to. He says, God had something better. And it wasn't just for them, was it? Who does verse 40 say that something better was for? Us. God has something better. And let me ask you guys this, okay? Can we go back to Sunday school real quick? You good with that? Either way, I've got the mic here, okay. What is it that was promised that was better? Jesus. Jesus. Listen to what the author's saying. That from the very beginning of the world, all the way back to creation, in the first couple of verses of Hebrew 11, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, no matter who it is you're talking about, whether it was Abel or Enoch, 
whether it was Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses or Gideon or Barak or Jephthah, no matter who it was, whether it was David or Samuel or the prophets, no matter who you're talking about, God always, always had something better. And it wasn't just for people in the Old Testament. It was for all of us. He had something better for all of us. And his name is Jesus. There has always been something better for the people of God than what they were experiencing during their life on this earth. And that better thing was Jesus. Now we talked about this quite extensively in verses 13 through 16. And so I'm not gonna go back over that. You can go on the internet. You can download that sermon if you wanna hear it again. But, but the reality is this. At the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, man and his wife, Adam and Eve, had sinned and they'd broken relationship with God and the world had a curse that was placed upon it and God came into the middle of that garden and in verse 15 of chapter three in Genesis, God made a promise that he would say, a rescuer who would come and destroy the enemy of God and set everything right that sin had destroyed. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that big promise in the Bible was reiterated over and over and over again. A savior would come and he would set up an eternal kingdom. He would reverse the curse of sin. He would make a new covenant with God for people to live within. That one big promise all throughout scripture is a promise about Jesus. And the Old Testament saints the ones who were on mountaintops and valleys, victories and failures, all of them were pleasing to God because their faith was precisely placed in that one big promise. They didn't understand it all. There were lots of details they didn't know, but they still believed God that something better was coming, something better, and they went through their lives And it was like that one Thanksgiving that I had. Everything they experienced, even when it was something good, that they didn't deny that it was good, but they said, I thank God because something better is on its way. And those who experienced things that are hard, they didn't deny that they were hard, but they said, I'm so thankful to God because there's something better that's on its way. And that better thing was Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's what the end of verse 40 says and is pointing out that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That word perfect is a word Hebrews uses over and over again. It means to be, to be perfectly complete. It's a way that describes our salvation. So how are we forgiven by Jesus? We're perfectly, completely forgiven. How are we accepted by God through Jesus? We're perfectly and completely accepted by God. How well are we adopted into his family? We're perfectly, completely adopted into the family of God as his children. Over and again, that word perfect is a description of how we are saved by God's grace through the work of Jesus. Basically, the Bible's teaching us that we are perfectly saved every way we need to be saved by Jesus. And verse 40 saying this, there's never been another way and there never will be. It's Jesus and it's only Jesus. Apart from Jesus, they would not be made perfect. Jesus had to come and do the work that only he could do. And apart from Jesus, we could not be made perfect. Jesus had to come and do the work that only he could do. He's always been the one and only way 
to be saved, to be made right with God. And he, because of who he is and what he does, is better than every other thing. And the big idea from this passage this morning is this. Believing that Jesus is better pleases God. Believing that Jesus is better pleases God. Always has always will, there is no plan B, Jesus is plan A, and believing Jesus is better pleases God. And here's the story for us in this room. While the people of the Old Testament had to believe that something was coming that was better, we have the privilege of looking back and saying, something has come and he is better. He is better than any other thing. We can see clearly through the lens of looking back that Jesus lived the perfect life we could not live. He's better than us. He died the death we should have died as a payment for our sin. He's better than us. He satisfied God completely, making us acceptable to God where we aren't naturally acceptable to God. He's better than us. He was buried and rose again three days later because he's better than us. We look back and see clearly through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has come and he is better And it pleases God when we believe that Jesus is simply better than every other thing. And guys, that's one of the reasons why it's a good thing for us to gather around the Lord's Supper as we prepare our hearts to celebrate this week leading up to Easter. And here's what I mean by that. Do you remember what happened when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that we're celebrating today? You guys remember what happened? They celebrated, right? The city went crazy. They had a huge Jesus party as he walked in and the crowd went crazy celebrating Jesus. You know why? Because they thought he was good. They thought he was good and they liked what they heard and saw and believed and imagined him to be. But through that week, you know what Jesus did? He did what he does. He was himself and he started saying things and doing things that they no longer agreed with. And by the end of the week, that crowd that had celebrated Jesus, you know what they did? They gathered again. This time they weren't celebrating him, were they? They were crucifying him. You know why? Because at the beginning of the week, they thought he was good, but they didn't believe he was better. They didn't believe he was better than what they'd understood Messiah to be. They didn't believe he was better than what they could contribute or add or understand or imagine. They didn't believe he was better. They just believed he was good. And it is essential that we gather around the Lord's table as we celebrate this week to prepare our hearts to say and receive and believe that no matter what you fill in the blank, Jesus is better than that. He's glorious in his work and the salvation he provides is the only way to be made right with God and he is simply better. And so as we gather around this table, what we're saying is that we're trusting in the work of Jesus, that he is better than us and he is better than any other thing. And before we actually partake in the Lord's Supper, I was thinking through the week, but but what does that life look like? I think we all would gather and want to say, of course Jesus is better, but what does it actually look like for me to live into Jesus being better. And I'm gonna give you three words that you can write down and we don't have a lot of time. Like the author of Hebrews, time would fail me to elaborate on all these points. 
But here's three words you can write down. What's it look like to live like Jesus is better? Here's one word. It looks like knowing. It looks like knowing. Here's what I mean by that is you won't believe Jesus is better if you don't know why he is better. You know what? You want to know where we find out how it is and why it is that Jesus is better? We find out in his word, the Bible. One of the reasons we study the Bible is not just to be religious. We study the Bible so that we can learn about Jesus. The Bible's a book about Jesus. So here's what I want to just show you really quickly. Your heart will be stirred as you gather around his word and you look for reasons to see who he is and what he does and why that's better. And this morning, I'm just going to share with you what I did this morning when I woke up. Many of you are going through the Pray 21 prayer guide. I did it this morning. I went through the section on meditation, John chapter 15, and I wrote down there on a piece of paper in in my office at the house, I wrote out a piece of paper what I was seeing about Jesus. Let me share with you about why Jesus is better just from the meditation of Pray 21 this morning. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, John 15 verses 1 through 17 says this, Jesus makes you clean from every sin. That's pretty good, right? No, it's not. It's better than that. (laughs) That's a trick question. Jesus gives you new life the way that a vine supplies life to its branches. Jesus will give you fruit that endures, the kind of stuff the world can't add and can't take away. Stuff like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Jesus will answer your prayers, whatever they are, when they align with his word. It's incredible, right? Jesus will give you his joy. How much joy do you think Jesus has this morning? All of it. And he's willing to give it all to you, that your joy might be full, that his joy would be in you. Jesus loves you with greater love, it says. The kind of love that motivated him to lay down his life in your place. That means he cannot love you more and he will not love you less than he does this very minute. Jesus thinks of you as a friend. So what he says, you are my friends. Jesus chose you. He wanted you. Do you want to know? That's the 17 verses in John chapter 15. Jesus is so much better than anything else this world has to offer. Nothing can compare. So as you desire for your heart to be stirred to believe Jesus is better, you have to know why he's better, how he's better, who he is and what he does. And that looks like knowing what the Bible says. It also looks like rejoicing. Looks like rejoicing. Guys, don't underestimate the power of praise in the life of his people. Rejoicing over Jesus is what we're gonna do forever in heaven. And sometimes in our life, we we find that the most practical thing we can do is just be still and think about Jesus and rejoice in Jesus. And many of us go through life lacking a kind of joy the Bible describes and we We lack that joy precisely because we've taken our eyes off Jesus. It looks like rejoicing. This morning we're gonna do that around the Lord's table and it also looks like choosing. Knowing, rejoicing, choosing. This is where we're gonna be in verses one and two of chapter 12. But this morning you need to see that when we believe and rejoice that Jesus is better, we begin to make decisions that show we value him as better than any other thing. So how we spend our time, our energy, our money, our talents, all of that is directly affected by what we believe about Jesus. And again, we'll look more more about this next week, but today I just wanna ask you this. What decisions would you make today if, if you really believed that Jesus was better than whatever else this world had to offer? 
that Jesus was better than anything else money could buy or any other way that time could be spent. How would you live if your choices reflected you believe that Jesus is better? So what does it look like to live like Jesus is better? It looks like knowing he's better, rejoicing over how he's better and choosing to display his value and his worth. And with that in mind, here's what we wanna do. We wanna gather around the Lord's table and we wanna rejoice in Jesus. We wanna rejoice in how he's better and what he's given to us through his life, death, and resurrection is better than anything else this world has to offer. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads. And as you bow your heads, I'm gonna ask our deacons to come and prepare the table. I'm gonna ask you to just prayerfully consider whether or not your heart is believing by faith that Jesus is better. So friend, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, this is your day. You can personally know how much better Jesus is by being forgiven of all your sins so that you don't have to bear, carry that weight anymore. You can be given the power of Jesus to live a brand new life. Even now, some of you, your heart hears about Jesus saving you in every way you need to be saved, about Jesus dying in your place, about Jesus giving you fruit. And you want that. You want him. That sounds better. This morning, would you admit that you are a broken sinner and you can't make yourself right before God? Would you turn from your sin and call on Jesus to save you? Would you ask him to forgive and heal you? restore you to God. The Bible says that all who call on Jesus by faith, depending on them as their Lord and their Savior, all who call on Jesus through faith will be saved. Would you call on Jesus today? And many of you say, I'm trusting in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And some of you that are followers of Christ are living on a mountaintop this morning. Would you take a moment and rejoice in the middle of your mountaintop that whatever you're experiencing in this life right now, Jesus is better and has something better in store for you. He's being good. And in this good season of your life, what he has provided for you is better than any other thing. Would you rejoice right now on your mountaintop? And some of you are in a valley and it's hard. I wanna encourage you, would you trust in Jesus right now? Would you rejoice that Jesus is better? And that as you rejoice that Jesus is better, would you be assured that your valley doesn't mean that God is displeased? I can't be the Holy Spirit and I don't know the choices you've made, but if you're trusting in Jesus, as your Lord and Savior, God is pleased with you through the work of Jesus. And in your valley, would you be reminded that even in this hard season of life, he's still good? And would you rejoice that there are better days, eternal days that lie ahead because of Jesus? Fathers, we gather around this table that is a reminder to us that Jesus came, that something better that all those thousands of years were waiting on, that that better thing has come and his name is Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would not be like that crowd on Palm Sunday. 
I pray we wouldn't gather as a crowd of people and celebrate Jesus because we think he's good and then go through the rest of this week and have to constantly face decisions in which we say by our actions, he's good, but he's not better than this. He's good, but he's not better than that. God, help us to believe that Christ is simply better. Help us to rejoice in what he's provided through his life, his death, and his resurrection. God, I pray that our gathering around the Lord's Supper would be a powerful celebration of our wonderful Lord and Savior who has come once for all as the payment for our sin. We thank you for Jesus and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.